0: Music, marks the times of our lives, reminds us of days gone by, and inspires today's and tomorrow's hits. Hi, I'm D Dwayne and welcome to The Real Deal. Spotlighting the best music and the biggest artists of yesterday. Providing an insight of just what made them so great. October 14th, 1969, millions across the country, including myself, witnessed the beginning career of a superstar. He was only 11 years old, talented, gifted, and absolutely amazing. He would go on to sell more records than anyone in history, which is an accomplishment that still remains to this day. Michael Jackson, even from the beginning, was an artist that you just had to watch and couldn't take your eyes off of. When I saw him for the first time on the Hollywood Palace television show, I was blown away and I couldn't help but wonder, how could a kid this young have this much talent power and charisma, and how did he learn to perform and convey it in a way that is still unsurpassed? How? Much has been said and written about Michael Jackson, but we're going to take a look at Michael from a different angle. We're going to study and discover the artistry of Michael Jackson, and shine some light on how he discovered his gift, how he nurtured and matured his gift, and how he ultimately became overwhelmed and unable to contain this very same gift. We're going to start with his influences, his idols, those who inspired him and looked up to, those that he studied and learned from. Not everybody knows all of his hit records, but we have selected the recordings that fully display his musical gift and dynamic artistry. We have purposely decided to skip a lot of the huge pop hits in his career and present the recordings that captured his poignant and unique artistry. Welcome to the Real Deals presentation of the gift and the artistry of Michael Jackson. Michael's first exposure to music came from television, radio, and within his own family. During the 1950s, Joseph Jackson briefly performed in his own blues band, the Falcons, playing guitar. Despite their efforts, the Falcons failed to get a recording deal and subsequently broke up. Katherine Jackson aspired to be a country singer but was dismayed to find that there were no notable black country stars. Michael's talent was discovered first by Katherine Jackson who noticed Michael at the age of four singing alone to the radio and dancing to the rhythm. While she tried to tell Joe of Michael's talent, he brushed her to the side, even though she insisted. Katherine would sometimes lead her children into country music sing-alongs, which is how she taught them to harmonize. It wouldn't be until 1966 that Joe began to see seven-year-old Michael's overall talents three years after Catherine's discovery. Beforehand, Michael had performed on stage without his father's knowledge at several school recitals starting at the age of five. By the end of 1966, Michael was positioned as the second frontman of the group after Jermaine. Michael's talent was rare and very noticeable as his vocal role was increased within the family group. Now let's be real for a second and talk about uh, hmm human nature. Family dynamics are weird. There's a fair level of dysfunction in every family, and when that family is controlled by a control-free patriarch, all the more. When that family starts climbing the ladder of fame, things can get really out of control. Now Jermaine was the original lead singer for the Jackson 5, and Michael freely admits to using Jermaine as sort of a style guide as a kid. It didn't take long for Michael to become the focal point and the lead singer of the group. Michael grew up listening to and watching Motown, The Rat Pack, and musicals. He was influenced by performers from all forms of entertainment, making tributes in his songs and dance to the following. James Brown, Fred Astaire, Sammy Davis Jr., Gene Kelly, Diana Ross, Marcel Marceau, Charlie Chaplin, Jackie Wilson, Frank Sinatra, Chuck Berry, The Temptations, Etta James, Ray Charles, and many others. Michael was like a sponge, soaking up a ton of musical data and storing it for later use. Michael's biggest influence and his favorite performer was the godfather of soul, James Brown. Michael was blown away by James's energy and charisma on stage. He loved the way James danced and the way he so effortlessly moved his feet when he would perform. As a child, Michael would watch James Brown on television eagerly trying to learn his dance steps. He would often get angry when the cameraman wouldn't show James Brown's feet. Michael stated and I quote, When I saw him move, I was mesmerized. I've never seen a performer perform like James Brown, and right then and there, I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. When Michael spoke at James Brown's funeral in 2006, he stated that James Brown was my greatest inspiration. Ever since I was a small child, no more than like six years old, my mother would wake me up no matter what time it was, if I was sleeping, no matter what I was doing, to watch television to see the master at work. After signing the Jackson 5 in March of 1969, Motown CEO Barry Gordy brought the group to Motown's Hisville USA studio in Detroit, Michigan, and assigned them to work with Bobby Taylor as their producer. Bobby Taylor, who had personally brought the Jacksons to Motown, began having Michael, Jermaine, and Jackie record cover versions of current and past soul compositions, including many in the Motown catalog. Over two dozen of these recordings were done, including a song written and originally recorded by Smokey Robinson. Now, we have purposely chosen the songs in Michael's career that display his unique artistry. Now this was very difficult to do because he has so many outstanding recorded performances. Michael was energy, he was electric, and if you listen, and I mean really listen to his performances in this music, I'm positive you will see and hear exactly what I'm talking about. Now you should already know that Michael Jackson took Smokey's song and made it all his own. The song wasn't a huge hit for the Jackson 5, but it did put everyone on notice that this kid, Michael Jackson, had a special gift. Here's Smokey Robinson discussing a 10-year-old Michael Jackson and the song, Who's Loving You. I wrote
1: that song. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I sang it. (laughs) I wrote that song back in, and a few years later, here comes this little kid. He's ten years old, and uh, Barry had this gathering at his house. He said, "Come on, I want you to see somebody very special." So I go over there, and these five young guys are there, and they sang and danced up a storm. A couple weeks later, um, they recorded my song, and. Um, I heard it. I thought to myself, now they have pulled the fast one on us. Because this boy cannot possibly be ten years old. This song is about somebody who had somebody who loved them but they treated them bad. They treated them so bad till they lost them. And now they are paying the price of wanting somebody back that they treated bad and lost. How could he possibly know these things? (laughs) I quickly went over to him because I wanted to see his birth certificate. (laughs) I did not believe that someone that young could have that much feeling and soul and know. He had a lot of know, he had to to know something to sing that song like that.
0: In 1969, Motown moved the Jackson family to Los Angeles, set them up in the homes of Diana Ross and the label's owner, Barry Gordy, and began grooming them. Michael remembered Barry Gordy telling them, I'm going to make you the biggest thing in the world. Your first record will be number one, your second record will be number one, and so will your third record. Three number one records in a row. Well that prediction came true, only the number was four. Their first four singles were number one hits. The young Michael Jackson owed much of his vocal technique in large part to Diana Ross. Not only a mother figure to him, he often studied and observed her in rehearsals as an accomplished performer. He later expressed, quote, I got to know her very well. She taught me so much. I used to just sit in the corner and watch the way she moved. She was art in motion. I studied the way she moved, the way she sang, and just the way she was. He also told her, I want to be just like you, Diana. And Diana said, just be yourself. Cultural critic and musician Jason King in an essay wrote, it's not an exaggeration to say that Michael Jackson was the most advanced popular singer of his age in the history of recorded music, but his untrained tenor was remarkable. By all rights, he shouldn't have had as much vocal authority as he did at such a young age. Now, we would like to set the record straight on how the Jackson 5 were brought to Motown and how they were presented to the world. After winning a contest at the Apollo on August 13, 1967, singer Gladys Knight sent a tape of the group's demo to Motown Records hoping to get them signed, only to have the tape rejected and sent back to them. (laughs) Singer and producer Bobby Taylor sent the Jacksons to Detroit and offered to help out with their Motown audition, which was set for July 23rd. Following the taped audition, which was sent to Barry Gordy's office in Hollywood, Barry Gordy requested the group to be signed, which led to the group signing to Motown on March 11, 1969. This group inspired Barry Gordy to formulate a creative and marketing plan that would achieve chart dominance and immediate success. In fact, the Jackson 5 would become the final group that Barry Gordy would personally and actively be involved with in this manner. On the creative side, he enlisted and assembled a Motown team called The Corporation, which consisted of composers and songwriters Freddie Perrin, Deke Richards, Alfonso Mazel, and on the marketing side, Barry recruited his biggest star at the time to help out. Diana Ross was more than happy to assist in introducing the Jackson 5 to the world, and she did so in concerts and several television shows. Their first album was titled, Diana Ross Presents the Jackson 5. Released in May of 1970, The Love You Save is the third of four Jackson 5 number 1's released in a row, with the others being I Want You Back, ABC, and I'll Be There. We have selected this song from this era of Michael's career because you can hear how comfortable he is in leading the group and commanding your attention. My name is D. Dwayne and you're listening to The Artistry of Michael Jackson right here on The Real Deal. <laughs> As the first single from their third album in 1970, I'll Be There was the Jackson 5's fourth number one hit in a row, making them the first black male group to achieve four consecutive number one pop hits. I'll Be There is also notable as the most successful single ever released by Motown during its Detroit area which is between 1959 and 1972. In his autobiography, Moonwalk, Michael Jackson noted that I'll Be There was the song that solidified the Jackson 5's career and showed audiences that the group had potential far beyond bubblegum pop music. Online music guide service AllMusic said about the song, rarely if ever had one so young sung with so much authority and grace, far beyond his years. The most successful single ever released by the Jackson 5, I'll Be There, sold 4.2 million copies in the United States and 6.1 million copies worldwide. He does. a child star and the lead vocalist of the hottest group in the country, Michael's voice was at its prepubescent prime as he displayed complete power, control, and clarity on his first solo album. Released in January of 1972, Michael was 13 years old when the song Got To Be There was a top 10 hit in both the UK and the United States. The album still had its share of bubblegum pop, but it was our first look at Michael Jackson as a solo artist. Rumors and speculation of him leaving the Jackson 5 immediately ensued. Now of course Michael wasn't granted much creative control on this album, but he was given a little vocal latitude on this album and of course this title song as well. Got to be there, right here on The Real Deal. One major hit from the Got To Be There album was I Wanna Be Where You Are. The creative freedom that Michael experienced while making this album allowed him the ability to understand his gift and take his performance to another level. It also gave him a taste of what was yet to come in his solo career. Michael knew things were going to change for him and his brothers and the thought of a future solo career excited him and frightened him at the same time. I Wanna Be Where You Are was released in May of 1972 and Michael was already envisioning the making of an album that would capture his talent at his best. My name is Dee Dwayne and you're listening to The Real Deal as we present the music, the artistry, and the life of Michael Jackson. Okay, let's see just how much you really know about Michael. Here are six things that you as well as I probably didn't even know about Michael Jackson. Check this out. Number one, Michael wore his mother's black sparkly jacket for his Motown 25 performance where he performed Billie Jean and moonwalked for the first time. Did you know that? Okay, number two. Most people thought it was Michael's idea, but it was Elizabeth Taylor who originally called Michael the King of Pop, Rock and Soul at the award ceremony. After that, he was given the name the King of Pop by the media. Mm-hmm. Number three. Eddie Van Halen played guitar on Beat It. He played his solo so loud that the engineer, Bruce Swedien had to leave the control room where the monitor speakers actually caught on fire And were put out with fire extinguishers (laughs) That's a hot solo Number 4 Michael had his own brand of energy drink Called Mystery I didn't even know that Did you know that? No you did not know that No you didn't Number 5 Michael was the top earning celebrity last year Earning $160 million Which is more than anyone else Dead or alive Wow Number 6 Although he was a vegetarian for most of his life, Michael Jackson loved him some Kentucky fried chicken. <laughs> and here's the bonus fact for you. Pepsi paid millions of dollars sponsoring Michael's tours from 1984 to 1994. That's 10 years of sponsorship. But guess what? Michael never drank Pepsi. Not even a can. My name is D. Wayne, and you're listening to The Real Deal right here on TheHot12.com. It is well known that boys at the age of 13 and 14 years old always have a change of voice. Michael went through this too and he would periodically work with a vocal coach to help him find his new voice and guide him through the process. This period in a boy's life usually lasts between six months to a year. Michael also began to develop acne and dealt with it via his diet becoming a vegetarian. He continued to suffer with acne well into his late teens. While working on the movie, The Wiz, Michael commented that he was happy to wear makeup to cover up his acne. It was on the set of The Wiz that Michael Jackson met his future. Super producer Quincy Jones explains.
2: We met when we did The Wiz. Michael came over to my house. I'd met him when he was 12 at Sammy's house about, when he was about 12 years old. But he's, I guess he's 19 or 20 now. And uh, he said, uh, could you First things out of his mouth, could you help me find a producer for my solo album? We go on to Epic Records, and you could help him on my solo record. And I remember at the Academy Awards, saying Michael, when he was little, sing Ben, the love story about the rat, you know? And um, I said, Michael, my biggest concern right now is I, I will think about that, but my biggest concern right now, you don't even have a song in the picture, man. You've got on Down the Road with Dinah, but you don't have a solo song, you know? That's what I'm concerned about now. We have to concerned about pre-recording and all this stuff with Nipsey and Pryor and Lena and, you know, Diana. It's a lot of work. Before you shoot one foot of footage, you know, you have to do all of the pre-recording. And you have to do a lot of good guessing about tempo and times and, you know, lengths and all of that stuff, keys, everything. So, uh, so I'm going to get you a song first, and then we talk about the rest. So we got you, you Can't Win in there for the Scarecrow song. And uh, one day they were... I got a chance to watch him a lot. and uh, They were at the St. George Hotel in Brooklyn, blocking a scene with the principals, the four principals. Um, and Sidney was a t- the floor taped up, and he was pulling little pieces of paper out of his chest that's in the picture. Da 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 Confuses, da 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 What? Shakespeare, da 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 Socrates. I what? And he said, Socrates, again and again and again, you know. And so after two days, I said, Michael, before (laughs) you get in the habit here, it is Socrates. And Michael said, really? And he looked me dead in the eyes. These are big, beautiful doe eyes, you know. And uh, I don't know, at that moment, I said, you got a producer, man. I'd like to take a shot at it.
0: Quincy wanted to inspire and present a new and grown up Michael. And Michael wanted a record that didn't sound like the Jackson 5 or that Motown sound either. They both wanted to do something that had never been done, an album packed with hits that would be unstoppable on the radio and in the disco clubs all over the world. Michael knew he could do it, and he did. He wrote and co-produced Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, a song that won his first Grammy Award for Best R&B Vocal Performance in 1980 could keep on because the force has it, got a lot of power and
3: it makes me feel like it it, it makes me feel like it.
0: just enjoyed part 1 of the real duels presentation of the artistry of Michael Jackson and the best is yet to come continue on to part 2 right here on the hot12.com